Uh, my name's James or Jimbo, if you haven't met me before, and I'm one of the elders here at church, and we're going to be continuing our series on Mark chapter 9 today. So if you've got your Bibles or a phone there, it'd be great to turn to Mark chapter 9 verse 30, which is where we'll start today. Uh, and particularly if this is your first time or you're a visitor here, can we extend a special welcome to you? We're so glad that you decided to join us this morning uh, or online, and it's fantastic that you're here as we continue this series thinking about uh, what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And so please make yourself known to us afterwards. We'd love to meet you and get to know you, uh, and we'd love to help you understand what it means to be part of this community if you'd like to join us in the future as well. Uh, Let me pray as we come to God's word this morning. Father, we have sung this morning about how high you are, about how holy you are, how exalted and great you are. And Father, today as we think about what true greatness looks like, Father, I pray that you would give us insight into your view of greatness, that you'd help us to see how great you really are, not in the way that our world thinks greatness is, but in the way that Jesus teaches us in this passage. Father, teach us your ways. Father, teach us your truth. Help us to walk in your ways so that we might live in the freedom and joy that Jesus brings. Amen. I want to ask you this morning, uh, what do you think your future will look like? Uh, For most of us, we think that our futures will be better than the present. Uh, They'll be more greater, more comfortable than our current life is at the moment. And that's what drives us to get up each morning, uh, to work towards a better future. Whether it's a better financial position, or a better family position, a better job or career progression, we expect our career progress to be a progress and not a regress, not to go backwards. Things in life generally are supposed to go from good to great, upwards and onwards. And what about our spiritual life? Well, I think most of us have a similar outlook, don't we? We hope and assume that we'll get more closer to God as time goes on, that we'll enjoy greater joy in the Lord, that we'll see progress in our faith, all of which are good things, onwards and upwards in our spiritual walk. But what about our church? In 10 years' time, what do we expect that City Reach West will look like? A church of 500 with two services, three services, or a church that's planted two more churches, or a church with a big building to meet in each week, or a church with baptisms every month as new people are coming to Christ every week, a church that you can be proud of. In life, we have expectations of greatness, that things will always go onwards and upwards. But is that an assumption? Why should we assume that things will only get better? That's a really old song for those of you who don't know. It's from the 90s. Uh, Today, we're continuing our series on the School of Discipleship from Mark's biography of Jesus' life. And we saw a few weeks ago uh, that Jesus went up onto a mountain with three of his disciples. And when he went up on there, he was visibly transformed in front of them. Instead of the Jesus that they were used to seeing, they saw him changed, visibly radiating with glory as his clothes became brighter than white. And in that moment, the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament of Jewish history appear next to him. Moses and Elijah on either side of Jesus. Two great men who had spoken God's word authoritatively to God's people. And you would expect God to tell the disciples to listen to these two great prophets standing before them. But instead we read, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. 
Listen to him. God says, as great as those two huge prophets were, someone greater has come. And not just God's servants, the prophets, but God's very own son. And so now they are to listen to Jesus. The letter of Hebrews in the New Testament picks this up when it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of God's glory. So in this next section of Mark, uh, we have someone who is better than Moses and better than Elijah now teaching us. And he's teaching us what it means to be a follower of, God's, of God, what it means to be a disciple, a disciple of Jesus. But what is a disciple? We often throw that term around in Christian circles. Is it someone who's a fan of Jesus or someone who's a follower? Well, today you can follow someone on social media and it doesn't really cost you anything and it's unlikely to revolutionise your life. Uh, The Greek word methetes, uh, which is translated in our Bibles as disciple, essentially means student or learner or apprentice. Because a disciple, an apprentice, uh, follows their teacher around in community. They learn a way of life from them. It's not just about learning information like in a school lesson for an exam, but it's about catching a a new way of life from someone as you copy them and emulate them. Uh, Cole Marshall and Tony Payne describe it like this. They say that the goal was for them to not only know what their teacher knew, but to also be like their teacher, to walk in his ways. They weren't learning a subject, they were learning a person, if we can put it like that. His knowledge, his wisdom, his whole way of life. Jesus is teaching his disciples what it means to be his disciple. And he does that by teaching them what it means to be like him, to be like Christ. But to do that, before he begins to teach them, they, begin to, they first of all need to unlearn some things. You see, when it comes to small incremental changes in our ways of thinking, we don't need to unlearn much. Uh, When they release that yearly update to Android or to Apple smartphones, uh, you don't really need to do too much learning to learn how to use the new iOS or Android operating system as part of using the new phone. As long as it's the same ecosystem and platform, you kind of generally know how to use your phone. But sometimes you need to unlearn how to do things the old way completely because the old way won't work in the new reality. It's like when those first smartphones first came out and you'd been using those old phones with the buttons that you had to kind of press the numbers to type in letters and you had to unlearn how to punch in buttons on a physical keyboard and then begin to learn how to use a touch screen to use this new way of operating. And Jesus' kingdom is so radically different to our world that before the disciples can positively learn how to be a disciple, they need to unlearn their old way of thinking about the world. As do we. We need to learn and unlearn how to live in this world in order to learn how to become part of Jesus' kingdom. And that's the topic on view today, the topic of greatness. What does our world say about greatness and how does Jesus' kingdom show us something different? In this section of Mark's gospel, Jesus is heading south to Jerusalem. He started up in Caesarea Philippi in chapter 8, and he's heading now south towards Jerusalem where he will face his fate and die on the cross. And he wants his disciples to understand what is about to happen. And so in verse 31, Jesus tells his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus clearly, plainly, 
and calmly tells his disciples in advance that being the king, being the Christ, will look like. And he says it's going to involve being handed over and being killed, and then one day rising to life. Jesus is a good teacher because teachers know that you need to repeat difficult ideas or concepts for their students to make them simple and clear so that people understand them. This is the second of three times that Jesus will predict his death in Mark's gospel because the disciples, like all of us, are slow to learn. And you notice what Jesus tells them. He says that Jesus is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He doesn't say that Jesus is going to be taken by evil men, but handed over. And so the question is, who is handing Jesus over to these people? Well, the most obvious candidate is Judas, right? If you read on later on in the story, later on Judas, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, will betray his teacher and deliver him over to his killers. That's true, but there's something else going on here. Jesus is going to be delivered up by God the Father to pay the price for humanity's sin or rejection of God. This might sound a little bit strange to us, to think that God would hand over his son. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, we're told, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What is about to happen to Jesus is not some accident of history. Things didn't get out of hand with the Jewish religious leaders. What is about to happen to Jesus is not humanity getting out of God's plan and escaping and kind of making chaos. God's plan A was always for Jesus to head to the cross so that you could be reconciled to God. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 23 on the screen. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus' humiliating death was not some accident or unexpected failure. It was always God's plan to rescue the world. It was the way that God the Father and God the Son would show their love and how they would show the greatness of their love for us. But you notice how the disciples respond to Jesus in Mark chapter 9, verse 32. It says they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. They don't understand and they're afraid. They don't understand because what Jesus is saying doesn't make sense to them. It doesn't fit their pre-existing notions of what Jesus should do and their framework about how God works in our world. They had this stereotype of a Messiah as someone who would come in greatness, in power, in glory, who was making their lives better and he was going to make everything perfect in this world. And they thought that their lives materially and spiritually would be greater now that Jesus had arrived. They thought that Jesus' kingdom would bring in the fulfillment in their life. But here, Jesus, their master, their model, says that his kingdom doesn't bring the fulfillment of your dreams in life, but it brings about the great surrendering of your dreams in life. Just like Jesus himself is going to surrender his life on the cross. And so what they need to do is they need to unlearn what greatness looks like. Because Jesus has said that his future does not look that great. He's about to go to Jerusalem and die. And if you want to live a great life, you would not put dying on a cross at the top of your list, would you? A great life would be about you fulfilling your dreams, about you going up in the world, not going down into the grave. And so what Jesus does is he tips their expectations, and he tips our expectations upside down of what a great life looks like, of what it means to be truly great in this world. So let's keep reading from verse 33. 
And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Now, Jesus brings his disciples into the house. It's a, it's a quieter setting. There's less distractions and less noise around. It's a private place where he can speak to them as their teacher. And he asks them, Hey, what were you guys talking about? And an awkward silence begins. They know what they've been talking about. Jesus knows what they've been talking about. And it's kind of embarrassing because they were talking about which one of them was the greatest. They've been caught red-handed by their teacher. But rather than get angry with them, Jesus teaches them. And he teaches us something radical about being his disciple. Do you notice what Jesus does in verse 35? He, he sits down. Now, sitting down in the ancient world was the posture from which Jewish rabbis, Jewish teachers would teach their students. They're about to hear a lesson from their teacher. But more than that, by sitting down, he's physically lowering himself. He doesn't stand towering over them. He doesn't stand eye to eye as their equal. He sits down below them and he calls them down to him. And from this lowly posture, Jesus teaches them the upside-down nature of true greatness. He says that in his kingdom, if you want to be first, you need to put yourself last. If you want to be greater than everyone else, you need to become a servant of everyone else. And so Jesus inverts our way of thinking about greatness upside down in this world. What is great in this world is not going up in the world, but you willingly going down in the world, down in the gutter to serve other people. You see, in our society, we think that those who do great stuff are great whether they achieve great things in the sporting field or in their careers, whether they have more followers on social media. Greatness in our world is based on achievements. That's why in the business world they have these things called organisational charts. Have you seen these before? These organisational charts where who's at the very top? It's the CEO, the great one, the one who's done the greatest amount of things in the company. But in Jesus' kingdom, the great ones are servants. The CEO's job is to serve other leaders above them. And then the other team leaders, their job is to serve those above them. This is the hierarchy in Jesus' kingdom. There is hierarchy, but it's an upside-down hierarchy where Jesus serves us and then we serve others. But in society, we gravitate to those our world sees as great. And we aspire for our future to be great like their futures are. We see people with great careers or great wealth or great skills or great kids or great spouses or great holidays or great houses, and we want that kind of greatness. The greatness our world describes and offers us is a desirable future, isn't it? I searched Twitter this week to find out what it had to say about greatness, and here's what some of the top searchers said. Greatness uh, isn't achieved by worrying about what everyone thinks of you. Don't look outside. The praise, criticism, expectations, it's all just noise. Look inside to your heart and soul and do your thing. Do it in love and create greatness from the inside out. Well, this next tweet from the Kansas City Chiefs saying, greatness is the mission. They're sports heroes, so they can only afford four words to describe greatness. Or Michael Schofield, who says, people who keep whispering discouragement in your ears are the ones who gave up. You are destined for greatness. You will graduate. You will get the job you need. You will improve your living standards and those around you. You have to believe this with your entire being. Very inspirational. Or Galebki, whoever he is, stop being surprised when good things happen to you. 
You are worthy of greatness. Well, this is my favourite. Work hard, pursue greatness at all costs, eat American meat. I don't know how that works, but apparently that's a thing. But Jesus says, true greatness is not found in putting your needs or your plans or your desires first, but in putting your needs and desires and plans last. Jesus' teaching here is not something you can add to the pile of self-help teachings and ideas that our world offers us. It's not another dish on the smorgasbord of life philosophies about how to be great in this world. Jesus means that greatness is not found by looking inside yourself and listening to your heart. Jesus means that greatness is not the mission to win whatever it is that you're seeking in life, whether it's a sporting trophy or something else. Jesus means that greatness is not about graduating or the perfect job or about your living standards. Jesus means that greatness is not something that you intrinsically are worthy of. True greatness is not about you making yourself great or pursuing your great life. So what then is greatness? Jesus says greatness is about you serving others, about you humbling and lowering yourself, you considering that other people are more significant than you are and becoming a servant of all. In our world, we kind of get that service is a good thing. We're willing to serve at certain times and for certain reasons. We might serve our boss because we know that one day they'll pay us our wages. We might serve our friends because they'll repay us when we need a favour. When we do serve in our world, we do it because it's beneficial to us somehow. We'll get some kind of benefit back in return from serving. But look at how Jesus changes our view of service in verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus takes a child and brings them into the middle of the circle of disciples, right at the centre of the room, the spotlight on this child. And he says, if you welcome someone like this child, it's like you are welcoming me. And if you welcome me, well, that's like welcoming God himself. Now, we read verse 37, and it's a bit confusing for us, because what does Jesus mean to receive a child? What is it about children that Jesus wants us to welcome? Uh, is it their cuteness? Oh, they just got such chubby cheeks. Is it their innocence and naivety? They just say the darndest things. Is it their playful immaturity and silliness? Is it their carefree nature? I think what's on view here is not the fact that children are cute or innocent or playful or their lack of worries. What Jesus wants us to see about this child is that children are nobodies. Jesus wants us to see and to welcome the nobodies of the world. In the ancient world, children were not valued in the way that they are today in our society. So we need to do a bit of thinking about what it meant for children to exist back then. Children back then were seen as weak, as a liability, as a burden. They could be ignored or they could even be disposed of in some of the ancient Greek and Roman worlds. In fact, a few hundred years ago, even in our societies, children were sent to work in factories in really appalling conditions. Our modern society's view of children is very different to most of human history's view of children. And in fact, it's often been countries that have been influenced by Christianity, by Jesus' disciples, that have often led the push to welcome children and to protect the vulnerable children, to see children as worthy of respect and love and care as much as adults. But think about it. If you really boil it down, how productive and useful and great are children? I mean, they don't pay taxes. 
Uh, They don't make our lives better. I heard a statistic this week that the average newborn causes their parents to lose the equivalent of 133 nights of sleep in their first year. You're doing well, parents. Uh, They usually create more housework than they help with. Uh, Overall, they're a net drain on your resources, your happiness, and your freedom. They don't have anything to offer you but smiles, and they can often be pretty stingy in handing those out, especially around mealtimes. Children have nothing to offer. There is nothing particularly great about them. They are dependent on other people for everything in life, kind of like little leeches from feeding and clothing and shelter. They contribute very little to our world. And so in the ancient world, they were the nobodies, with no rights, no greatness, no honour, no prestige. And even in our world, sometimes even in our churches, it happens, doesn't it? When a family walks through the door, often we'll greet and welcome the parents, the adults, those who make decisions in the family, those who are great and have power and influence in the family unit. But do we actually stoop down and greet and welcome the children as they come into church? Or in the service this week and last week, are they a distraction and not that important as we get on with the adult business of listening to God's word? In our world, we generally welcome and we greet those who we think are important. If the Prime Minister was going to come and visit church today, we'd probably make sure to welcome him, maybe roll out a red carpet or formally acknowledge him and put on a morning tea or a lunch or something. But Jesus is saying, true greatness is seen not in welcoming those who will do something for you, but in welcoming people who will never be able to repay you or help you back in return. Welcoming and receiving the nobodies in our world. When you welcome someone in our world who our society thinks is insignificant, a nobody in our world's eyes, Jesus says you are welcoming him. You are welcoming the king of this upside-down kingdom. And in effect, it's like you're welcoming God himself. Are nobodies the people that churches promote on their websites? Or do we put the happy, shiny people and successful people on our church social media posts? Do we seek to show and portray to the world what we think a great church should look like? Friends, I know that I'm guilty of this. Wishing and envisaging for a happy, shiny church, a church that looks cool to the outside world. But Jesus tips upside down our expectations and he says, true greatness is found in humility. And humility means putting other people above yourself as we embrace and we welcome the nobodies of the world. And to be fair, that's who we are anyway. We are the nobodies of the world. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul talks about how God chooses the nobodies of this world. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God intentionally chooses the nobodies of our world in order to embarrass those who think that they are something, those who think that they are great in this world. And the reason he does this in verse 29 is that so so none of us, no human being, can boast before God. Why do we as humans boast? We boast because deep down we think that we are something, And the Bible very clearly says that all of us are not. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have rejected God and we've promoted ourselves into his position above him. We brag and we boast and we make ourselves the boss of our own little kingdoms. 
We want to determine how we think our own little kingdom should run independently of God. What an offensive thing to do to the God of the universe. When in fact, rather than a promotion, we actually deserve a demotion for our rejection of him. And so what God does throughout the Bible is God lowers the proud. Human pride is at the very heart of sin because it's us putting ourselves in God's rightful place because God alone is the truly great one. So often we substitute God's greatness for our human puny greatness. And we need to be rescued from this delusion. John Stott puts it like this. He says, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone, and God accepts penalties that only man alone deserves. The human heart is proud and entitled. We think more highly of ourselves than we should. In social psychology, they call this the illusory superiority. It's also known as the above-average effect. Uh, Apparently, 90% of American drivers think that they are above average in their driving abilities, and I'm sure it's very different here in Australia. Uh, This defies the law of mathematics, and it defies the laws of road safety. This selfishness, or pride, or arrogance, is sometimes given nice names in social psychology, things like egocentrism. What a nice pathological label to call selfishness and pride. According to Wikipedia, According to egocentrism, individuals will overestimate themselves in relation to others because they believe that they have an advantage that others do not have. As an individual considering their own performance and another's performance will consider their performance to be better, even when in fact they are equal. But if anyone in our world could claim to be above average, it was Jesus, wasn't it? And rather than boast and brag about how good he was, he used his greatness not for his own advantage, but he laid down his privilege. He became one of us. How humiliating. Can you imagine how humiliating that was for God? And then his life was a life of humble service. And then it culminated in his sacrificial death on a cross as a suffering servant. Greatness is not the opposite of humility. True greatness is found as you humble yourself, as you lower yourself to serve others around you like Jesus. And that's why we're told in 1 Peter chapter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so what does this humility, this true greatness, look like practically? Well, we see in the very next story uh, an expression of this practically, where we learn that true greatness makes space for others. True greatness makes space for others. Read with me from verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Last week we saw in Mark chapter 9 how the disciples had met a father who had a son oppressed by an evil spirit. And we saw last week how the disciples were unable to cast out the evil spirit. And Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. And yet now in this next story, we see that the disciples are trying to stop someone who is able to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Here, the disciples are trying to stop someone doing the very exact same thing that they were unable to do only a few episodes earlier. 
And why is that? What reason does John give? Well, in verse 38, it says, we tried to stop him because he was not following Jesus. No, it says, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. The proud disciples have missed the point, and they make it all about them. They are not seeking God's glory. What they are seeking is their own glory. They're not concerned about getting more followers for Jesus. They're concerned with getting more followers for themselves. It's that raw, ugly pride, and it expresses itself in jealousy and petty tribalism. They say, Jesus, we stopped him. We stopped him. Give us a pat on the back, Jesus, because we stopped him because he's not part of our tribe. He's not part of our group. John tries to justify it and make it sound like he's doing Jesus a favor. But it wasn't really about John trying to help Jesus, but about John wanting to control other people for his own ego. Jesus tips John's pride upside down. Jesus tells them not to stop this man because anyone doing good things in Jesus' name will not then turn around and speak badly of Jesus. In Jesus' kingdom, there's only one team Jesus, and all of his followers are on it. And yet a few decades later in Corinth, we read Jesus' followers splitting off into different tribes and factions. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Tribalism has always been a problem for Jesus' followers. And the reason that is is because all of us have pride. We all think that our team is the best, and all those other Christians out there, they've got it wrong. We're like devoted footy followers and we've become blinded in our thinking, thinking that we're the only ones who have the truth, not realising that we're all playing the same game. We're all representing the same king if we're representing King Jesus. Our pride and our ego leads us to view other Christians and other churches very easily with fear and suspicion. We become jealous when they're thriving in areas that we're not as a church. Or we become arrogant and look down on them and we miss out the point on the point that we're all on Jesus' team. Psychologists call this negative attribution error. As proud humans, uh, we attribute negative emotions uh, or negative intentions to people when we don't know the full story. We assume things about the other person and we usually assume the negative about them. You see, John doesn't go on and speak to this other guy. He doesn't go and have a conversation with this guy and say, hey, who are you? Why are you casting out demons? What's going on? How can I understand and hear a bit of your story about why you're following Jesus? What he does is he assumes the worst. He assumes that this guy casting out demons is not on their side and he attributes negative intentions in the absence of information. Now, I'm not saying there's no place for being discerning, uh, for calling out false teaching when we see it. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But in general, Christians are pretty bad at being charitable towards one another because of our pride. What is your default posture, your first assumption when you hear of other Christians and what they're doing? Is it one of embrace and joy and welcome, or is it one of fear and suspicion? I heard this really great insight uh, on a Christian podcast this week. They said that in God's kingdom, other people don't need to lose in order for you to win. In God's kingdom, other people do not need to lose in order for you to win. Greatness in Jesus' kingdom is not a competition. We're all on the same side. And so by Jesus saying, whoever is not for us is against us, Jesus is saying, you're going to face enough opposition in this world, and so you need to get all the friends and support you can get. Um, 
And those words are especially relevant this week. Uh, I don't know if you've seen in the media, uh, we've seen some of our brothers and sisters in Melbourne being persecuted and attacked for their faith. Uh, This week, the church sitting on a hill has been all over the news because their chairman of their uh, church board was then appointed as the CEO of the Essendon Football Club. And the media found out that City on a Hill hold the controversial views, apparently, uh, that abortion was wrong and that sexual activity outside of, homos- uh, sorry, outside of heterosexual marriage was wrong. And even though the chairman, Andrew Thorburn, never himself made any comments about abortion or sexuality, uh, he was hounded out of his job within 24 hours and forced to resign. Um, it got me thinking, how do, we, how do we respond when we see things like that happen? Uh, what do you first think? What's your first desire you know, is it, oh, well, if I was him, I would have done things differently? Or do you think, oh, well, he's part of an Anglican church in Melbourne and, and we're not an Anglican church here and, and we're in Adelaide, so things are different? Or do you stand with them? Or do you grieve with them? Do you pray for them? Our social media doesn't help our world's tribalism. Our tech companies employ psychologists to spend time working out what creates more engagements on their platforms because more engagements means more advertising dollars. And do you know what causes people to spend more time on social media? Feeding people's pride and tribalism. Our need to feel greater than other people. And so as Christians, we often attribute negative motives to other tribes or groups of Christians out there. And our world and society then often attributes negative motives to us in the church. Uh, this week, the Premier of Victoria publicly blasted City on a Hill Church without seeking to talk to them or understand them or have a conversation with them. As humans, all of us, in the church and outside of the church, we do it all the time. But here in this passage, Jesus is in, more inclusive than our world is. And Jesus is more inclusive than his disciples were. He rises above our tribalism and he calls on us to follow him in that as well. And so what might that look like for you? Uh, Do we sometimes fall into that trap of confusing God's kingdom with just our church and our church only? Are you charitable and generous towards Christians who are outside our tribe? You see, true greatness is found as you lower yourself. And years later, Paul tells the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The greatness that our world seeks is so often based on that selfish ambition, on pride and conceit. It puffs ourselves up at the expense of others and by pushing them down. But here Jesus' followers are told to pursue humility, to consider and to regard other people as more significant than we are, to put their interests and to put their benefit ahead of our own and to serve them. This is the true path to greatness, but this is the path that Jesus calls us to, but it's also the path that he himself walked. Look with me at how Paul continues in the very next verses, in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus tips upside down our view of true greatness because the greatest one, Jesus, was the one who humbled himself, who lowered himself down out of heaven and as if that wasn't humiliating enough, he died on a shameful cross in your place. But look at what God then did in response to Jesus' lowering to his humiliation. In verse 9 it says, 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus lowered himself, God has now lifted Jesus up high, and God has made his name great. And the one who served is now the one who is Lord and King, who is served by all. And so will you follow Jesus in his humiliation? Is that what you expect of your Christian life to look like? Instead of being onwards and upwards, to be forwards and downwards. Doesn't quite have the same catchy ringtone, does it? Down into humble service. Down into humiliation and rejection from the world around you. As you die to yourself for the benefit and sake of others and for their salvation. Friends, do we have great expectations of what life will look like as a follower of Jesus? Do we have Jesus' view of greatness or the world's? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the one who is truly great. You are the one who all greatness and uh, exaltation belongs to. And Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus who became one of us, who lowered himself and humbled himself in our place and showed us what true greatness looks like. Father, we thank you that because Jesus has shown us what true greatness looks like, you have now exalted him and shown everyone how magnificent this view of greatness is. Father, we confess that in our hearts we have broken views of what greatness is. We keep thinking that we need to put ourselves out there, that we need to lift ourselves up. But Father, you tell us time and time again that you oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. Father, please humble us. You know those areas in our life where we keep putting ourselves higher than we ought to be? You know those ways in which we've sought to put ourselves over and above others and their needs? And Father, we want to confess today those places where we've let pride fester in our hearts. Father, we thank you that because Jesus died on the cross, you have paid the price for all of our pride all of our sin, all of our self-exaltation. And Father, we bring it before the cross and we humbly lay it at the cross. Father, please help us to be like Jesus. Transform us to be his disciples, to be those who see that greatness is not found in lifting ourselves up, but in lowering ourselves into humble service. Father, please help us to welcome the nobodies of our world. Help us to be those who realize that we ourselves are also nobodies. Help us to love and embrace those who have nothing to offer us and to serve sacrificially in the way that your son Jesus did. Father, we pray that your spirit would transform us, give us a new heart, a heart that longs to humble ourselves in the way that Jesus did. And we pray this for his glory and his honor so that his greatness will transform our lives and transform our world. Amen.